Alright, here we go then. You know, one of the treats of doing this job is as I go back through older movies and shows, Star Trek, and games, sometimes I'll come across a work that I used to like, and I remember liking, and I'll analyze it, and it's crap. And I'm like, God, why did I ever like this? But no, the, the real thing is, every now and again I come across one where not only do I like it, but after analyzing it, I like it even more. If you've been following this whole series, you've probably seen me talk about episodes like that over in Voyager, TNG, DS9, and Enterprise, where it's just like, wow, this, this is good. So, if you have any problems with me gushing about this episode, this would be a good time to click away. Um, yeah, so, obviously this is inspired by several sub-films, although there's a lot of inconsistent information about which specifically, so I'm willing to just say that it's inspired by sub-films, and ignore the one bit of irritation in the film, which I'll get to more later. Uh, we do also mention, want to mention one thing really quick. This was written by Paul Schneider, who... <sighs> history. History is such a thing. Um, how many of you have had... I'm not going to name any specifics, but how many of you have studied a history of something and then time passed and more works and more analysis was done on it and people realized that that history was wrong and it was actually this? Well, that's the Romulans. Uh, several people, for example, uh, credit, I believe, Gene Cook for the creation of Romulans. He wasn't even working on the show yet. This is, he wasn't even involved. Several works, including this awesome book, which I have sitting right here, but also this book over here. Hang on, I've got actually like five books on my desk that I'm, I'll precariously mention. But both of these books uh, agree it was actually Schneider, who is the person who really originated the Romulans as a people in the Romulan Star Empire. Now, Schneider himself actually did work on uh, one other episode you might remember called The Squire of Gothos. I'm actually not sure how to pronounce that. It's been a really long time since I've seen the episode. But, you know, the Trelane episode. The Trelane episode. This is also directed by Vincent McEviti. I'm not actually sure how to pronounce that one either, because I suck at everything today. But he is another semi-regular director. He would work on uh, five other episodes other than this one. And both of them do good performance here. We also see uh, the, the only usage ever of the phaser room, because it has to be there for the drama, and the phasers, <clears throat> because they hadn't invented the term photon torpedoes yet, so phasers were all they had. Even though if you pay attention to the graphics and the application and literally everything about the phasers in this episode, they're, they're torpedoes. I mean, they're, they're freaking depth charges is what they are, but let's not get into that. Let's talk about the Romulans. Schneider envisioned the Romulans as... Now, this is interesting, because I want to stress something here. He didn't think Romans in space. He thought Romans who advanced to the space age. There is a distinction there, because that implies you know, centuries of cultural, uh, effectively, stagnation and self-reinforcement of the mentality and the ideal of the Roman military. Now... I say Roman, I was just mentioning history earlier, we, we have a lot of uh, <clears throat> things we've had to fix about our knowledge about Roman history, and of course when you mention Rome, you have to mention which Rome, since there's like 87, slight exaggeration, so, <laughs> you know, we got to add a lot of gray to this, but the point is, he wanted that kind of militant ideology 
It was a privilege to be a part of the Roman military. It was something you paid for, something you actually put out of pocket in order to become a part of the, the grand armies and actually uh, focus and work on your campaigning throughout the peninsula, right? That was a big deal. And so what happens if we take that ideology and keep it going? So this is our first Romulan episode, obviously. Also our first cloak. This is the first time we have a cloaking device on the show. It's also the first something else, which is interesting. I don't think this was deliberate, but this is our first Planet of Hats, technically. And I know I'm stretching the definition here, but the way the Romulans were designed was effectively to be a Planet of Hats, as many other races would eventually be in Star Trek history. I still say this is kind of a technically, especially since Mark Leonard's character, who I'll talk about in a minute, uh, he's clearly designed to be not quite a normal Romulan, which is more than most Planet of Hats get. But I point all this out because it's just fascinating watching the development of Star Trek history unfold in front of me here. We see the episode begins with a wedding, and then they go to red alert because we know that you know he mentions the, the outposts have been hit. And that's the cold open. Allow me to say this is probably the best cold open so far in TOS. This is good. It's quick, it's punchy, it gets across the point, and it's going to serve as a nice bookend. So we talk about the neutral zone. We get some quick and dirty exposition. We had a Romulan Earth War, which we still haven't seen in Star Trek history, although Enterprise was supposed to do that. <sighs> Fresh reminder that Season 5 could have been amazing. Anyways, um, Earth-Romulan War, where they had no ship-to-ship -ship communication. Remember that, okay? Just keep that in your mind. Also, this is a good thing. Well, no, let's let's cut back to that later. Let's instead talk about another first for Star Trek. This is the first time the Federation is established as being um, doormats. Kirk actually mentions that uh, per per his orders that most people are not aware of, his ship and the lives of everyone on board and all of those outposts are considered acceptable expendables in the service of maintaining the peace treaty with the Romulans. Even if the Romulans wipe them all out, we should still maintain the peace treaty. So, you ever wondered where that doormat diploma diplomacy... Diplomacy? The doormat diplomacy that the Federation uses in the future? Here you go. It all comes right back to balance of terror. Now, we could argue that, obviously, there's some very strong Cold War inspirations here, and obviously a nuclear war is nothing that anybody wants, even you know when actively attacking each other. But... The fact remains that this is so starfleet, it's so Federation, excuse me, it's it's kind of hysterical. Anywho, this then leads to Stiles, who mentions early on that he has a history with the Romulan Earth War because he had people, uh, uh, ancestors who died in it, and so, you know, that's kind of a thing for him. Okay, understandable. We also see early hints of the level of devastation this thing can do. And a lot of emphasis is placed repeatedly on just how powerful the plasma torpedoes are. This is one of those weird things that kind of helps flesh out the episode in a weird way. Because in the future, the Romulans will generally be considered one of the powerhouse races, which is funny since, for the most part, they're actually more well-known for being subterfuge and manipulative and all that stuff. But the Romulan ships are traditionally some of the biggest, baddest ships around in just about any era. And this is no exception. Now, don't mistake me. Pound for pound, a constitution could smear... Uh, I don't remember the name of the class. I don't remember the name of the class of the bird that they're in. 
one of those Romulan birds just smeared across the spaceways, unless they get hit by the plasma torpedo, in which case they are screwed. It's a bit of a one-trick pony thing, and as we've talked many times ever since the Krenum over on Voyager, a one-trick pony is really good if you can manage to get that trick off. So we have this devastating weapon, which can do horrific damage, and they, they re-emphasize this. This is the damage we've taken inside solid rock and iron, and also we have shields up, and it still destroyed us this badly. You know, two shots to wipe out an outpost. Yikes. Um, so yeah, this is when they show the cloak and the way it works. You notice they track the cloak with motion sensors, despite the fact that the ship is cloaked. Actually, that makes perfect sense. Even even if we were to consider all of Star Trek canon, I'm still completely with this, except for Enterprise. Give, give me a second. I'm still building up to that point. Because one of the consistent trends across all of Star Trek history is that the cloaks get better over time, and our methods of detecting them get better over time. No, seriously. There, I was even asked this in a Tumblr question forever ago. You know, hey, you know, why isn't there a Cold War between the two? And I'm like, but there is. Here, we can detect them easily and effortlessly as long as they're moving. Just straight-up motion sensors see them, even when they're, you know, cloaked. Later on, we'll get to the point where we need to actually scan for emissions or ionized plasma in order to find them. Even further on, we'll have to find the distortions that they're leaving in the cloaking field itself. Even later on, we'll need to push out certain kinds of beams which can bounce off them, and so forth and so on. It gets more and more complex as we go. And their ability and the cloaks themselves and the quality of the cloaks gets better the further on into the story we get. So that all actually lines up and makes perfect sense to me. So then Outpost 4 is gone. This is a good time to mention the first biggest reason why this episode works for me. It's not because it's a landmark episode. It's because of the acting and the weight that is put behind everything. When Outpost 4 is destroyed, everyone takes a moment to just pause and cope with that for a moment. It's shown as a j deadly serious event, you know, even though we've effectively just seen one random NPC who we'd never seen before just die, it is still treated as a serious event. And it's also an insight into the other outposts which were destroyed before we even got here. All of this is treated with, uh, I mentioned weight, it, it, it's treated with the weight that it should be. This is a serious drama, and that's what sci-fi needed at this point in history. But in my opinion, it's something that Star Trek in general needs to have, at least some of the time. We can talk all we want about bouncing graviton beams off the main deflector dish, and aliens, and godlike powers, and all the other nonsense that exists in Star Trek, but if it doesn't ha this is my opinion, but if it doesn't have that weight to it, then it's all just nonsense. Let me use a parallel example, because I really want to make this point very clear. You ever see Star Wars? The original, A New Hope, Episode 4. <sighs> you know one of the reasons why, in my opinion, Star Wars worked? Alec Guinness. We had a bunch of new actors who obviously were hungry for the roles and really wanted to push and prove themselves, but Alec Guinness brought a severity and a sincerity that the film desperately needed. When you have that kind of a straight, weighty performance talking about things like the Force and energy fields that bind us and destiny, it works because of the way it's presented. If it had been someone of lesser caliber, 
and lesser gravitas, it simply wouldn't have worked as well, and it wouldn't have had anywhere near the impact that it should have. Frankly, the same thing could be said about Peter Cushing in the same film. He sold the Galactic Empire as the villains more than Vader did, to be completely blunt. Oh, don't mistake me, Vader and his overall presentation was great, but remember, he's barely in the film, whereas Tarkin is the main villain of the actual film. Just food for thought, because that's exactly what we see here and what these actors bring to this performance. And it's, it's very, very, very needed, again, especially for the times, because we needed to sell people on the idea that science fiction can have serious storytelling. And I know what you're thinking, well, of course it can. Well, remember, that wasn't true at one point in time, but let me give a more modern perspective. Do you think a cartoon can have serious storytelling? Now, the answer is, of course it can, but it probably wouldn't surprise you to know how many people within the last several decades have been like, it's a cartoon, right? We can't possibly have serious, dramatic storytelling in a cartoon. That's nonsense. I got a better one for you. How about video games? You can't have video games have serious dramatic storytelling. You're jumping on mushrooms and, and attacking Goombas to, in order to save the princess from the Metroids. That doesn't work. So you see why this kind of thing is something that I praise and why I've spent the last like five minutes re-emphasizing this point over and over. Forgive me for the sidebar. But I felt it was relevant because it is my opinion that episodes like Balance of Terror are what helped anchor Star Trek the original series. <sighs> so, <clears throat> um, so the, the Styles mentions the probability of a Romulan spy, which is hysterical, because there is no Romulan spy, but I mention that because given the Romulans would later be known for being the sneaky people who spy on everyone, it's, it's amusing. And the big reveal, da 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 it turns out that Spock's father is actually... Okay, I'm sorry, I had to make the joke. But Mark Leonard obviously plays the Romulan commander. For the sake of simplicity, I'm going to go ahead and refer to him as Leonard throughout the course of this, because I don't feel like saying Romulan commander every single time, especially since that can actually apply to two completely distinct characters. So, Leonard is revealed. Spock is like... Huh. And everyone's like, huh. And Styles is like, you. Grrr. You'll notice that Leonard's the only one, well, actually one of two, who has the ears. Everyone else has these weird helmets. That always used to weird me out. Turns out, I can't believe this considering how pathetic it is, but it turns out the makeup and effort in making those ears for the extras and putting them on them was actually a big deal back in the day. It was expensive, it was time-consuming, and nobody wanted to do it large-scale, so their solution to make the episode work was plop all these helmets on the Romulans so we only have to see that on a couple of the actors. Brilliant, if I might be so bold, and a great way to salvage an otherwise excellent episode. It's just funny how that came to be. I also have a private theory that this is one of the biggest reasons why we see so much more of the Klingons than we do the Romulans in the future. If you're paying attention, the Klingons haven't even been invented yet. But the Romulans, if well, the Romulans only really appear in one other episode, uh, the Enterprise incident. And from what I have read, this is conjecture, that is the biggest reason why we see more Klingons on camera than Romulans, is because Klingons just get a little bit of grease on their face and there you go, they're good to go. But the Romulan ear prosthetic, well, that was actually aggravating to set up, so you can see the problems here. Anyways... 
Leonard, of course, goes back to what I was talking about earlier. He adds wonderful weight and gravity to his role and helps to sell the Romulan commander and the Romulan people in general. It's probably the biggest reason, if I might be so bold, why the Romulans lasted in Star Trek mythology for so long. Because of Mark Leonard. Which is funny when you think about it. Thanks, Sarek. Appreciate it. Um, so this leads to a really good... Oh, wait, nope. This leads to an aggravating point. And I'd say one of the bigger flaws of the episode. See, we had a big war with the Romulans and we never communicated with them. Okay. Uh, Enterprise. <laughs> there's, there's no nice way to smooth over this. Actually, we now have Enterprise and Discovery both expositing on why that actually makes no sense. This is ignoring the fact that the Romulans arguably had better cloaks back in Enterprise's era, as well as, well as the drone ship, which I won't, I'm not going to spoil too much about. I, you could argue that that's more Enterprise's fault than TOS's, and I could see your point, but I have to admit, even if we completely ignore everything else, as is TOS's you know, preferred norm, and just focus on the episode itself, this is still kind of silly, because the only reason this exists is so that there's a reveal about Spock. That's it. Would have been easy to just have the Romulan... The connection to the Romulans, Vulcan knowledge about how Romulans exist, and his his uh, approval of Styles' thing to be on the attack, Styles' bigotry against Spock, all of that can be maintained if you make it so that we knew who the Romulans were. But because they had to have that big reveal moment that, oh my god, it's a Vulcanian... Or excuse me, Vulcanite is actually how it's referred to in the script. It's a Vulcanite! Because they just wanted that thing, what we have is a continuity snarl that has been aggravating for literally decades. So thanks for that. So, big reveal happens. Styles glowers. He's just glaring at Spock. Kirk comes by, wraps his desk once, like, hey, pay attention. And then, very appropriately, I might add, does a full informal dressing down of him in front of everyone else on the crew. Or, that is to say, on the bridge. Now, there's an old thing. Uh, you approach someone privately, you approach someone in front of someone else, a witness, and then you approach someone publicly. It's, it's the escalation of how you deal with a problem employee. It's something I myself have practiced before, uh, both in business and in just real life. And it's, I think it's a good general approach to how to confront someone if you have a problem with them, right? First, private, you know, let's keep this down low, and if we could solve it there, we're good. If it doesn't get solved, you escalate, and if it doesn't get solved, you escalate. However, the reason I am full in favor of Kirk on this is twofold. Number one, this is a military bridge. I know, I know, Starfleet isn't military, blah, blah, blah. But we are in a clear combat crisis situation. Now's not the freaking time. Point number two, his obvious bigotry is something that I would consider to be just sufficient enough to escalate past the first two points, and just get on with considering this to be a real problem that needs to be solved now. So I'm actually fully with Kirk on that. He, he is once again proving to be the captain. By the way, nice little tidbit. I just want to talk about this right now because I was just reminded of it. When they're backing away from the plasma weapon, which is stupid, um, he, he while they're doing it, while they've got the two minutes until de detonation or whatever, he pulls over some guys and says, here, here's all our logs, here's our emergency buoy, jettison this immediately. That is not the first time he's done that. And I am once again impressed by his ability to think ahead in a crisis. Is it no wonder why Kirk was so popular as a captain for so long? My goodness, it's just weird seeing the competency on display from Starfleet. Anyways, 
So, Styles is very bigoted, of course. And I love the way the Kirk says it, by the way. Okay, you know what? You want your bigotry, you leave it in the corners where it belongs. Don't don't bring it onto my bridge. Okay. Meanwhile, Leonard, Commander Leonard, rebukes Decius for almost a similar act of foolishness. I don't think I've ever caught that before. Uh, the two, obviously, Leonard and Kirk are paralleled in many different ways. And Commander Leonard is, they, they try to do this thing where they show him as Kirk's equal and vice versa, which helps flesh out the character. And of course, Mark Leonard, the actor, is more than capable of managing that because he's a better actor than Shatner. So, good stuff, right? Good stuff. Good presentation. This then leads to this comparison. Kirk has to smack down Styles for his, you know, d obvious displays of you know, bigotry on the sh on the bridge. Meanwhile, over on the Romulan bridge, he has to smack down Decius for his obvious displays of stupidity. That is to say, his, uh, you know, we, we must inform him of our glorious triumph and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, but you just gave away our position, dude. You moron. <laughs> it's okay for the glory of the Praetor. Right. This is also when we find out um, that Mr. Decius, who is, of course, also Stan, a Vulcan in uh, Amok time, funny, funnily enough. Anyways, this is when we find out that Decius is politically connected. Well, that's cute. Then there's a conversation between the Centurion, no game name given, and the Romulan commander, no name given. Well, I, I just report on this. What do you want from me? If we are the strong, is this not the sig signal for war? And Commander Leonard is clearly weary of war, weary of this. This implies a lot of things very quickly and efficiently. First, warlike species, duh. But second, that they have been at war repeatedly. This is, a, this is probably the most important point here, because it gets across the idea that even though they've been locked away on their peninsula, that is to say, behind the neutral zone, they have not been idle. They have been actively expanding and conquering the entire time. This also gets across another point. Not every Romulan agrees with state policy. The state policy being the, let me use a direct quote here, the precept of unlimited expansion. Credit if you get where the quote's from. I'm going to save talking about that till we get there. But that one line caught my, my imagination in a way very few other things can, and it really focused the Romulan people, that one line. It's like, ah, oh, that explains everything. Because if the Romulan mandate is to always expand and always conquer and always war, you see? there, This is actually one of, one of the various Rome's' many, version, uh, many reasons for their downfall. They had an economic dependence upon war. And the very dependence therewith actually damaged their in, internal infrastructure and their internal economy so that they became more dependent on war. And so the more they did it, the more they damaged their own economy and the more it went to hell. Now, I don't know if that's being done deliberately, but it would explain a lot about why the Romulans expanded and expanded and expanded and then just kind of said, you know what, let's stop here and not have contact with anyone for 50 years. And then between that period, that's the end of Season 1 TNG, and the end of DS9, the Romulans still haven't expanded any further. Also notice that in this very episode, in the political infighting we see between Decius and the Romulan commander, 
Mr. Leonard, we are once again seeing that political intrigue and infighting, which was another hallmark of the downfall of various of the Romes. It's all good stuff. You can see why I just eat this up. This, this is great. <clears throat> so, so Styles, Styles is like, okay, we need to attack them right now. It's the only way. Because if we, if we let them go back, we'll show they're weak, and they'll come back and we'll have war. Spock agrees with that. Now, Spock is speculating in a vacuum. Styles is speculating based on the previous war. Spock is speculating based on the presumption that they are an offshoot species from Vulcans. That, you know, they were warlike and aggressive just like we used to be, which is obviously the intent. Now I bring, uh, don't worry, unification will happen later. The reason I bring all of this up, though, is both are right. Now, they don't know that. We do. Because the scene right before this was them discussing how there must be war. It's that whole thing I just finished discussing about, how they are going to go to war with the Earth, and how there is going to be this another expansion of period, and blah, 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 blah. This then led to, uh, leads to them deciding to attack them before they managed to get back over the border. Now, so they fired phasers, and I'm going to go and admit something. I believe I've mentioned this already, but back in 1991, I'm pretty sure, there was a 25th anniversary thing they did, which was awesome. But in the lead-up to that, they did the top 10 voted episodes of Star Trek TOS. Now, I'm pretty sure I already told this story, so I'm going to give a truncated version, because listed as number 10 was Balance of Terror. Now, my mom and I had a film that recorded that. We had the VSR, VCR, excuse me. So we had a VHS of the top 10. It was like the first five and then the last five on the two tapes. And I used to rewatch this episode a lot because it was among my favorites of TOS. And remember, this is in 1991. This is well after, you know, TNG was had already hooked me as a Star Trek fan. And, of course, the films. But the reason I bring all this up is even then, as a teenager at this point, it always confused the crap out of me what was actually happening in some of the scenes in this film, or in this episode. Now, with the advantage of hindsight and research materials and the remastered version... Uh, I now can tell you what's happening is that they're shooting torpedoes, and those torpedoes are exploding randomly in the distance, and that's what damages the ship. As a kid, I didn't understand any of that, because they're like, shoot phasers! And then it would shield like this starfield, and then you'd see something coming at the camera, and then blipping, and then at the camera and blipping, and the special effect was confusing as hell to me. I'm curious if anyone else ever had that problem. In the remaster, it's made way more apparent what's going on. And again, torpedoes, death charges, we're walking, we're walking. By the way, I forgot to mention it earlier. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our final first episode of Star Trek. This is the first episode that was remastered. So we've done it. We finished We finished the cage. We finished where no man has gone before. We finished the Corbinite maneuver. We finished the man trap. And now we've finished <laughs> Balance of Terror. Five first episodes of TOS. Whew feel exhausted. Anyways, but I'm not done talking about the episode because now I want to talk about something that's come up several times over an Enterprise. The role of the captain on the frontier. Now, obviously the captains of these ships have to make a lot of decisions about how they do what, where, when, and how, and why. And this informs a lot of their first interactions with a lot of alien cultures. They're on the frontier, they're on the edge, they make the call, blah, blah, blah. All that makes sense. One of the things that I started positing over an Enterprise... As I, I don't remember where this episode will go live rea in relative to that, but you'll see me talking about that if you watch the Enterprise stuff. 
is the idea of the captain literally being a function of the state. Let me explain that a little bit better. If right now a U.S. military captain makes a decision, that is not a decision that the United States government is making. And the United States government can condemn that and punish that person and do everything it can to distance itself from that action because that was not the decision of the actual state, right? This is how it is almost always portrayed, and with good reason, because as of TNG and DS9 and all the other modern stuff, there's hundreds if not thousands of ships out there doing tons of stuff all the time, so captains don't get that kind of leeway. The infrastructure exists such that it is necessary and possible for any first, you know, any major incidents to have you just immediately call home and be like, hey, so we encountered this thing. What do you want me to do about it? Uh-huh. Yep. I mean, we could intervene and save them all. Yeah, no. No, we, we've got the holodeck. We could... You want me to take pictures while they die? So, you know, it makes a degree of sense that they, <laughs> that they have to call it in. But rewind time back to the TOS... And the Enterprise era, none of that infrastructure is there. The Federation doesn't even exist in early Enterprise, or in Enterprise at all, now that I'm thinking about it, right? So the idea of the captain of a starship being officially vetted as an official of the state, therefore taking actions on behalf of the state, is an idea that I've fallen in love with as I've been covering these two shows. Certainly Kirk seems to approach things from that manner, as he does in this very episode. He gives the mandate at the beginning of the episode, we must not interfere, that's, that's the orders from the Federation, but I'm going to interfere, that's my call. And he makes that call based on all the information he has on the moment from his experts. You notice he does bring everyone in for opinions. He has a great bit where he turns to Stiles and says, give me your opinion. I asked you here for opinions, give me your opinion. Shades of what eventually Picard would end up doing. He wants buy-in from all of his different staff heads so he can make an informed decision. So Kirk, on the front line, knowing the circumstances, being fully aware of what's going on in the trenches, says, this is the call. Is that then the call of the state? Now, this is never addressed in TOS. I'm just going to say that flat. We do know in this episode that the uh, EarthGov or EarthCom, whatever they actually call it in this one, says, we're going to back you whatever call you make. But that, by its very nature, kind of implies that he does not have that automatically mandated power, politically. Uh, forgive me for going off on this idea, but I, I think it's a fascinating concept that Star Trek kind of missed the ball on doing, because both the series that really cover the period of time where this would work, neither of which actually did it. I'm not quite done talking about it, though, because now we have to talk about the Romulans. Now, Decius is obviously someone who is well-connected politically. That's an established character trait. But all we know about the commander is the fact that he's someone who is really an old vet who is a very decorated career of being an awesome commander. There's a reason why he's on the greatest of the flagships. Wait, do they have more than one flagship? That would be a really Romulan thing to do, wouldn't it? Anyways, that's why he's got this ship and why he was given the mission to go test the Earth border. Okay, that makes sense. Do you think he's here as an official of the state? Now, I think the answer is still no. But I think with the infrastructure of the Romulans and the way their political network works, it would entirely be likely that there are circumstances where military officials are actually officiates of the state. Especially given that the Praetor historically gets all his power from the military. So the military backs the Praetor, the Praetor is the one who takes over, whereas the Senate and the, and the other governing bodies kind of work underneath that and attached to that. 
But the Praetor is supreme because the Praetor has the backing of the military. Romulan. Just, just interesting to think about. I imagine if the Romulan commander was more connected, like Decius is, like if Decius was in charge, I imagine he could have just unilaterally declared war on the United Federation of Planets right now, and the Romulan state star empire would probably back him on that. But if Mark Leonard's character did, I'm not so sure. So that would imply that it's not a mandated thing, it's just dependent on how politically connected the individual is. Again, all fascinating stuff, and I, I apologize for the... Sidebar here, I just really wanted to go on this topic because it's so cool and they don't do anything with it. Um, so then the phasers burn out, which is very, very convenient because it happens right as they're being attacked by a torpedo, which they could take out. By the way, they go to emergency warp in reverse in order to dodge this torpedo. The torpedo keeps up with them. What? All right. I've been kind of ignoring this up until now. Well, that's not true. I've been mentally keeping track. You'll notice that they kind of don't really distinguish the difference between speeds uh, at all. I mean, for God's sakes, in this very episode they mentioned that the Romulan ship has only impulse drive, which is nonsense. If you had nothing but impulse, you know how long it would be to get from one star to the next? Because that's a major plot point in a lot of science fiction, never mind just Star Trek. Hell, that comes up several times in Enterprise, where the distance and the speed problem is a huge freaking issue. 17 years away from Earth at warp 3, if I remember correctly. So, that's nonsense. And the fact that this torpedo can keep up with them while they're going at emergency warp is nonsense. But I wanted to bring it up here because, see, for the most part, I'm willing to just let the speed thing go because whatever. Right? I mean, they haven't even decided how exactly the, the system works yet. And they keep changing their mind every episode. I'm willing to give them a little bit of slack. But in this episode, it's actually a plot point because the plasma torpedo has limited range. That range is posited to be something that is in range of the Enterprise's torpedoes. So, their range is something that they can achieve in about three minutes of emergency warp going, back, going the opposite direction. Think about that for a second. I know this sounds like a weird thing to bang on about. Would you believe this is actually the second biggest thing that used to bother me about this episode when I was a kid? No joke. I actually debated this exact topic with a few kids in the playground because it was like, how the hell does, does that, any of that work? How do their phaser blasts reach that far? And how, do, how does the torpedo go with them that quickly? And how does it... Why don't they just go around it? There's just so many questions. None of which are answered. It's one of the weaker parts of the episode, and it's part of the problem with Star Trek when Star Trek takes an existing idea, uh, like, say, Seven Samurai, and just adopts it directly into an episode like, say, Marauders. Now, I'm not saying this episode isn't anywhere near bad as Marauders, but you can see the holes start to creak through the plot when some things weren't adapted enough. Nitpicking aside, moving on. So, he jettisons the log entries. I actually already talked about that. Um, there's this really great bit where one of the guys is on the sensors, and he looks up to the commander, and he, all he says is, Commander! And you know what Mark Leonard's character says? Evasive action! Doesn't even need to hear the report. Just the first thing he says, Move! Go! 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 So then, we reach the other part of the episode that used to confuse me. We're up to three parts of this episode that confuses me, the kid. The Enterprise decides to play dead because the Romulan ship is playing dead. The Romulan ship sent out the debris and then stopped moving. The Enterprise gets hit by the nuke and then stops moving. 
Both ships are now silent and still, so they can't detect the other. But the moment one of them moves, we've got a problem. Submarine moving. Thing is, they treat that ridiculous, like they whisper. They actually whisper. Now, this can be talked over, and with the advantage of being an adult now, I can see this and be like, yeah, okay, this isn't as big of a deal. Not really. Because it's just, they're just whispering because of the psychological effect of hiding. They're not whispering because they have to. So, okay, you know what, I'll give it that. I was going to go off on this, because there's this one point where Spock accidentally hits a thing, and it's all like, beep, beep, and it's super loud. And the way the episode is presented, it is indicated that it is the loudness that picks up on it. That's why they were whispering. However, with analysis mode on, I can tell you that they're whispering because they're just whispering, like I just mentioned. And the reason the signal catches their attention is because it's a, it's a signal. It's an energy signal. It's an unintentional ping. And so now they see them. Note as well, by the way, this is another little bit of brilliance. This is how Kirk really starts to show his command credits, because he sees that, and they're like, what do we do? And he's like, no, no, wait, full power right now, phasers right now. He accurately and successfully guesses the Romulan commander's next move upon finding him and decides to attack first. That is very adaptive and, once again, shows the quality of Kirk. I kind of skipped over a scene. I do apologize. It's a good damned scene. Excuse me. Excuse my, excuse my damned language. Kirk is in his quarters and McCoy comes in and Kirk's like, why me? All these, all these people, 428 people, as we learned back in Charlie X, 428 people and the possibility of war between two nations. What if I'm wrong? Why me? Why do I have to be the one to make this call? And McCoy's answer is brilliant because McCoy's answer is that because it's you, because you are a legitimately unique individual, despite odds and statistical improbability, you are and always remain you. Terrible grammar aside, it's a good message, and it's actually arguably true in real life as well, so I have to admit I love that scene. It's also a good character moment, and very reminiscent of Pike's discussion with his doctor back in the cage, which I also praised. It's good stuff, and it helps to add to something that I've mentioned. I've heard some people say that this is one of the most action-oriented TOS episodes, and I would tend to agree, except for the fact that I completely disagree. Something like Doomsday Device, that's a little more action-oriented than this sucker. No, this... This is tension. And tension is a distinction from action. Tension is more holding your breath, waiting for the next move, like, oh, God, what's going to happen next? Action is far more, oh, oh God, ah, ah, in order to continue my terrible analogy of breathing. So this is a great tension piece, which, of course, then leads to the nuke and the thing, and they hide. I do love the fact that the Romulan ship wins, effectively, and then is forced by politics to attack. If you don't understand why I find that so amusing, remember what I said earlier about the fall of various of the Roman organizations back in the day. We had to go to war because we needed it, and that made things worse, which made us have to go to war. So the Romulan commander turns to attack and is crushed, like a bug, exactly as he knew would happen. Also, this is a good time to mention where Stiles sees the phaser coolant thing coming out. And there's a big thing saying danger. If I, I'm with it, but I have to say that was all completely unnecessary. His reaction sold everything. He just looks and he goes, oh, oh 
my God. Like, he could tell, you could tell when he sees that, he knows he's already dead. He knows it's gone. And in fact, he came very close to dying. If it wasn't for Spock's quick action, he would have died, just like the other gentleman did. So Spock rushes in, shoots. We have a great moment between Leonard and Shatner. Uh, excuse me, Leonard and Kirk. Whatever, you get the point. And they have to self-destruct their ship. Of course they do. We can't let our ship be taken in by the enemy, right? It's a great scene. It's a very powerful scene. I also have to comment on the irony that he mentions in another reality we might have been friends. Now, unfortunately, I don't think uh, Kirk and Sarek ever actually become friends. But it is still amusing to consider that perspective, especially since Sarek would eventually be friends with Picard. The episode ends where it began, in the chapel. But it began with a wedding and it ends with a funeral, more or less. It's actually more like one grieving widow. They didn't have time and facility to do a whole funeral. And they, that's a good thing to cut. It should just be her alone in the chapel, lamenting the loss of life of one person to show the cost of not only war, but potential war. Remember, part of the point of this episode is avoiding full-scale war, and thus showing this very human, very down-to-earth cost of that one life is important. I haven't really commented on it, because she and he, I didn't even write down their names, actually show up many times throughout the episode, both in, as part of the, the actions of the ship, but also interacting with each other. Thus, we have a reason to give a damn when one of them dies. Good stuff. In fact, I would go so far as to say great stuff. As always, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts. I know at least a few people, two people personally, who would say that this is their favorite TOS episode, and I can easily see why. This is definitely on my, you know, must-see, the VHS list, you know. And which is funny, because it actually was on my VHS list. Hope you've enjoyed, guys. See you next time.